just accurately representing, right? As far as the novels go, it's like Maltese Falcon, The Gambler, which is like not really a novel, whatever. Yeah. And then no, The Gambler's. Is a, it an, is it it's a novella. A short thing? What? A novella. Yeah, I mean it's 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 150 pages long or something length. I mean, Dostoevsky, when he writes a novel, they go on to, like, the thousands, yeah. like the Brothers Karamazov. So for Dostoevsky, I think he wrote it in, like, a month um, because to pay off gambling debts. Uh, no, it's true. He, was, he, was, he had to pay off gambling debts, and, he was in, and if he wrote this, he could do it. Um, so it's short for him, but it's... Uh, Depending on the type font, it could look like a standard contemporary novel in length. I don't know that it's fewer words than The Noble Hustle. It might be just about the same number of words. The Noble Hustle, and then we're reading the font. Yeah, yeah. Did anyone see it? The, yeah. Yeah, so what we're reading is not Euripides' play. We're reading Wally Shoyinka's, um reboot of Euripides' play. And there is, I'll just tell you that he has a very short introduction to it, which is um, uh, explaining um, what he's interested in in the scholarship about what, where Euripides' play came from. It's a little bit like what we were talking about, what, and what Aristotle was talking about um, in talking about what the story of Midas was really about. Uh, the Bacchae of Euripides is also um, in interesting ways about money, about mining money and coining in ways that are not obvious. Yeah, so what did you think of it? I liked it. Um, the Brandeis production, like, APU's music, and yeah. I didn't really think that needed to be there. Well, the music was terrible. Yeah. It was, it was like really bad Jesus Christ Superstar or something, or hair. Was yeah, chorus kind of thing. It was, yeah. but they were. Like a, isn't that like a thing? Yeah, music was supposed to. Yeah, be but it's not. But the chorus was really not seventies um, pop, which is what the music was. Didn't you think? Yeah, I, I didn't care for that part of it, but yeah. the acting was impressive. Yeah. I yeah, um, and the woman um, half of of um, Dionysus was amazing. Yeah, she was. I, at first, I was confused because I was like, "Wait, are there two?" And then I realized that they're supposed to be the same. Yeah. Part, like character, but I really, I liked how they did that. Once I figured it out, I was like, "Oh, because she was awesome." Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she really was. Um, yeah, I mean. Thank you. <laughs> okay, as soon as Lin Fei comes. We can start. Okay. Um, how's Multi Falcon going? <laughs> Are we liking it? Are, have we started it? Okay, so one of us has started it. Okay, there's safety in numbers. So, so um, Joseph has started, no one else has started it. Um, note many, many, many Multi Falcon questions on final exam. Actually, this would be a good way to trick me into making the final exam mainly about the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> which, <laughs> it would be fun. Um, how far did you get into it? How far did you get? Um, actually, I'm not too sure like, where 
Okay. And you don't check how many pages or locations are left? No. All right. <laughs> or percentages? Are you reading it on paper or on a... No, I'm reading like HTML, so I have like no idea. Oh, like, right. Okay. Yeah. See, that's a different... This is actually a, a relevant uh, thing to talk about in this class, which is if you know how much is left of a text, that's an experience of reading. And uh, there's a little bit of that experience, not in movie theaters where you can't hit pause and see how many minutes are left, but if you're watching a DVD or streaming, you can see how far into. Do you do that when you watch a movie? How far to see how far into it you are? Um, Ever? No, not in the middle. Like in the beginning, I'll see. Okay, how long is this movie? Is yeah. Time. But you never like pause it to no. go to the bathroom and notice how much time is left. Wow. You, you've got a whole lot of self-discipline. Um, that's amazing. What happens on long car trips with you? What do you like, like you're dry, like the car trip seems to be going on forever, but it's okay. You're not worried about when you're going to get there. Because I mean, I take time. Like I usually, if it's a twelve-hour drive, I'll notice the time now and yeah, and <laughs> well, actually, no. Yeah. <laughs> so you never check like Google Maps to see how much longer it's going to be or ways or anything. Not, That's not interesting. The, not for the time left, but so I know where to go. Mm. Are you driving or are you riding the car? Driving. That's different. Driving well, is an activity. Okay, so, but yeah. so 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 the cliche of when will we be there, which is what all kids ask all parents, that that doesn't resonate with you at all. No, just <laughs> That's amazing. Knowing, knowing how far along you are to me is worse. Yeah. Than, all right. So I'd rather like not know, and then when we get there, you get there. Okay, that's great that you feel that way. Um, do you keep track of how old you are? Actually, no, I really don't. <laughs> sometimes, like you know, I'm too like a year or two away, but yeah. sometimes I have to be like, okay, my so and so. All right. Do you know um, like the average human lifespan? Roughly. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you thinking I could go on for eight hundred years? I don't pay attention to that either. God, that's <laughs> I mean, so great. I don't pay attention to the end. Like, I just enjoy the moment. Like, what's the point of looking towards what's the end? life like? Well, that, no, that's really interesting. And that's why you also make the rational decisions on, um, on loss aversion and risk. So that's great. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's, env- it's enviable. Let's put it that way. Uh, most people don't feel that way. Anyhow... Uh, there is a thing with books, which, uh, what about the rest of you? Do you check how much more you have to read? Every three pages. Every three pages, and even if it's something fun? Like, yeah. so there's the end of, anyone read Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey? Anyone know that book? Anyone know Jane Austen? So, uh, one of the three or four great English novelists, most famous for Pride and Prejudice, ringing, ringing bells for everyone now. Um, so uh, Pride and Prejudice is actually a really good book about money and MacGuffins, or about wealth and MacGuffins. Uh, what happens at the end of Pride and Prejudice is that the proud and prejudiced heroine um, finally decides to take the even prouder and more prejudiced hero, or, or semi-hero, or anti-hero, but he's really a hero. Um, has anyone read it? Um, it's so great. It's really great. 
at any rate, uh, what the hero has to offer her after she's been turning him down um, over and over and over again is it turns out that not only is he a great and charismatic figure, so it is a rom-com, which all of Jane Austen is, pretty much. Uh, there's a little bit of argument about that. But all her novels are about uh, the OTP. What's that? The One True Pair Getting Together. All her novels are about the OTP um, getting um, pairing. And um, usually with um, an unexpected dividend in um, wealth. So it's not that they give up money for love. It's that something like a standard story would be they're willing to give up money for love, and because of that, they not only get the love, but they get even more money than they would otherwise have. And so that is uh, Jane Austen's story. So at the end of Northanger Abbey, which is really wonderful and delightful, it begins with the narrator um, complaining that all her fellow novelists have heroines who never waste their time reading novels and how she thinks this is really bad for the trade because if your heroines don't read novels, who are going to read them? So she frankly admits that her heroine does read a novel does read novels and thinks of herself as a character in a novel, um, which, of course, she is. Um, but at the end of Northanger Abbey, it looks like the OTP is finally about to get together uh, for, for good and all. And then, with like three pages left, something goes wrong, and it looks impossible that they're going to get together. And you know that experience? I mean, everyone has that experience in Harry Potter where um, you're getting right, except maybe Joseph, where you're getting right near the end of, your, of the Harry Potter novel, and um, is it really true that Dumbledore is dead, or is it really true um, that this terrible thing is real, that, um, that what you hope is some kind of trick on Snape's part, or on Dumbledore's part or something that was designed to fool the bad guys, but the good guys had to not know it, which is a standard thing in Harry Potter, right? Um, think of, do you all know Harry Potter? Does anyone know? So think of the death of poor Buckbeak. Let's begin. Um, think of the death of poor Buckbeak, who then turns out not to be dead. Is that a spoiler for anyone? Um, so we have hopes. And dreadful things have happened, but we also have hopes. And what happens as you get near the end of a book is that there's less and less time for the story to pull it out. That is, if you're, if you're three pages left and Dumbledore is dead, um, or seems to be dead, it's going to be... Did anyone have that experience reading Harry Potter? Um, that he seems to be dead, but three pages is enough time to explain how he isn't really dead. Um, how this was all really a clever um, ploy between Dumbledore and Snape and Grindelwald. Um, and that it looked really sad, and we see all the characters who are really sad, but there's a clever ploy, because we have three pages left. But then you read the first of those three pages, and nothing is happening, and it's not going in that direction at all. And you think, well, two pages left. She could still do it, and she had damn well better. But then you read the second to last page, and this is not going in that direction at all. And finally, you turn to the last page, and luckily, you know, it goes almost to the bottom of the page. So in those two or three paragraphs, she still could do it. It's going to be hard, but you have complete faith in J.K. Rowling. 
and then you, but you also know in your heart of hearts that she's not going to do it. Like with three pages left, you can, you can cherish a hope, and with two pages left, you know you shouldn't be cherishing the hope, but still, it could happen. It's not impossible. And then finally, that's the last page, and you're in despair, but you're still going to read it on the off one in a million chance that she does the right thing, but then she doesn't do the right thing, and then it's over. Right? So you've all had that experience? Um, except you. <laughs> you just take it as it goes. That is, it's so wise. Um, so um, that's what Jane Austen is doing in Northanger Abbey. So in Northanger Abbey, um, with three pages to go, suddenly what looked like it was going to be a happy ending isn't. And um, everyone is anxious, and uh, the, the two main characters are not going to get together. And then Austin's narrator, the same very arch narrator who has begun by complaining about all her fellow novelists who don't have novel reading heroines, um, says the anxiety that was the portion of the two characters, Catherine and Henry, and all who love them, the anxiety that was the portion of the two characters and all who love them cannot, I fear, extend to the bosom of my reader who can see from the telltale compression of pages that remain that we are all hurtling on to perfect felicity. So what she's doing is she's saying, you're reading this book and you know it's got a happy ending. That's like... Um, what Hitchcock says, um, tell the audience what you're going to do and make them wonder how. That's what Austin is doing. She's saying, you know there's going to be a happy ending, and you also know there are only three pages left, so you know the happy ending is going to happen in these three pages. And so the happy ending, in a way, is the fact that there are only three pages left, that there's no way with this little amount of time left that the happy ending won't come almost immediately, even though it looks really hard now. It's got to come almost immediately because there's no time for any difficult storytelling to get to the happy ending. So you can tell from the fact that there are three pages left that, or now two pages left because she spent a page telling you how you can tell um, that we're at the part of the happy ending. And she says, so there you are. Um, a, a bolt from the blue made everything okay. And, I mean, she says what the bolt from the blue is, but it's not particularly interesting. Um, and they got married and lived happily ever after. So what she is doing is taking the physical object that you're reading, the book, and she is um, noting what readers, what most readers do, which is they're aware of how much time is left in the book. And that awareness becomes part of what she narrates. That is, there are only three pages left in this book, or there are only two pages left in this book, or there's only a page left in the book. So this is the page where um, everything has to um, reverse and everything has to be happy, and so it did. And therefore, the book itself is an object in the book's universe, you could say. Um, it's, an, it's an indication. You're holding a physical object that is a signpost to what is going to happen next in the book, in, in the story, in the world, that that physical object is describing. And that experience of 
which is an experience of reading. It's not an experience of theater. It's not an experience of movies. It's not an experience of epic poetry, of oral poetry. It's not an experience of any other kind of work of narrative, of storytelling, in their pure forms, in their original forms, that is, in their pre-technological forms. The experience of knowing that the end is near is an experience that books introduced to the, to, to the world of stories. That is, that you are aware of how much time is left for, and therefore of how much story is left when you get near to the end of the story. There are analogs to this in plays, let's say, where if you go see a Shakespeare play, you know it's not going to last um, for 14 days. And in fact, you know in Shakespeare's day that it's not going to last beyond dusk. Uh, days were performed in daylight, and they couldn't go on into nighttime because they didn't have enough light to perform a play. They were outdoors. Um, so there are similar but much vaguer ideas of an ending um, of, of, of a, um, a terminus that you're getting to in other kinds of storytelling, but it's only with a physical object to the book that you are holding something which tells you where the terminus is. Do people know who Douglas Hofstetter is? Um, so he used to, I don't think he does it anymore, but he used to write what used to be called the Mathematical Recreations column in Scientific American, and he wrote a book called Girdle, Escher, Bach, and Eternal Golden Braid. That was his most famous book. He's, he's in his, I think, probably late 60s, early 70s now, and still writes. Um, they're books about logic and math and literature, and they're, um, they're quirky and interesting. And he thinks that's a bad, so it's his belief that this is a bad feature of books, that um, the fact that you see the end coming means that there's a kind of um, impossibility of surprising a reader that, um, who can orient herself by the approaching end. So he had this proposal, and he does it in one of his books, which is that you write a whole lot of filler, which is actually nonsensical, but each sentence seems to make sense that you put at the end of your story. And you never put a place where you say this is where the story ends. The story does end, but then it just continues with all this filler so that if someone is checking how many pages they have left, um, it could be anything from um, 10 pages to 200. They wouldn't know because there's all this stuff that looks like it's part of the story but isn't. And the problem with that is that you can't mark the end of the story clearly because then people can page ahead, how much more reading do I have to do? And they can page ahead um, and see a place which says, and this is where the story officially ends and the rest of this is filler. They can't do that. So the filler has to seem like it goes seamlessly from the end of the story. But then how do you declare the end of the story? So Hofstetter was, is musing about this, and then the essay in which he muses about it goes on for many extra pages because it goes on beyond where he gets to the end of his argument. But it's a little bit indeterminate where the end of that argument is. 
And in my opinion, and I would say in Jane Austen's opinion, he's getting the idea or the experience of reading exactly wrong. The experience of reading is one where discount curves cross over. If there is only three, if there are only three pages left in the book, then you don't want adventure and loss and risk. Adventure and loss and risk, which is what we were asking about last week, adventure and loss and risk is something that in a thriller, in a suspense story, a movie or a novel um, or a TV show, um, that's stuff that you want in the first half or even the first two-thirds. There is where you want the, that, that's where you want to have the experience of anxiety. But as you get to the end, you don't want the, you, you want solutions to that. What you're now looking at is only a short term left. So to talk about, again, to go back to this idea of hyperbolic discounting, um, in hyperbolic discounting, you prefer short term to long term more than you should. You prefer short-term gains to long-term gains more than you should. And your attitude towards what is close to you, what is close in time in the future, and what's far away in time in the future, is inconsistent. So that you'll take the $100 now, except for Joseph, you'll take the $100 now, um, rather than the $105 a week from now, but 52 weeks from now, you will take the, um, you won't take $100 52 weeks from now, you'll take $105 53 weeks from now. But as, the point is that as you approach 52 weeks from now, or 53 weeks from now, your preference will change. And if you were made the offer 52 weeks from now for $100 then or $105 a week from then, you, 52 weeks from now, you would take the $100 then. So you're made the offer now, and you take the $105 a week later. If you're made the offer in 52 weeks, you'll take the $100 then. So what's happening is that as the clock ticks down, your preferences change. And when there's almost no time left, right now there's a year before the consequences of a choice that you make between $100 and $105 have any effect on you, but if there weren't a year, and when there isn't a year, but only a day, most people's preferences will change. So when you're reading a book with an ending, with um, uh, uh, when the, where the clock runs out, with a deadline, what happens is as the deadline approaches, your attitude towards the story and your preferences about the story change as well. And that experience of rooting for different things, or rooting might be the wrong word, wishing for different things as you read, that experience of wishing for different things as you read, wishing for excitement to begin with, but then wishing for a happy ending as you get towards the end, notice that those are inconsistent wishes. Excitement isn't happiness for characters who are trying to um, get together and, um, and get what they want. Um, 
that's not where happiness lies. Happiness lies in actually getting their objectives, not trying to get their objectives. We don't want them to get what they want too fast. We want them to get what they want, but we don't want them to get what they want as fast as they want to get what they want. So we want something different from the main characters. It's not, incon it's, it, it's not the opposite of what they want. Um, Oscar, Oscar Wilde has the famous line about a Dickens character, Little Nell. Did anyone know the line? So it's Little Nell as a character in Dickens who uh, Dickens wrote in serial um, form. Do people know what serial publishing is? It's like TV shows before Netflix. That is, you would get an episode. What is it? It's like weekly or monthly or tri-monthly. So Dickens was writing monthly serials. And um, so there would be an episode that came out every month and people would rush to the, um, to the bookstores or the newsstands to get the latest um, um, issue. It's kind of like Game of Thrones. Um, what did you think last night, by the way? Oh, my God. Oh, you don't want to know? Oh, seriously? Yeah, only like season three. Why did I find it so funny, though? I feel like there's more comedy yeah. Me too. <laughs> I was like, why am I laughing? Why are they all looking at each other? Okay, stop, 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 stop. You know, look, look at poor Noah. He can't, he can't Sorry, be serious. If I do this, you guys can talk about it. We're not talking about like spoilers. It's just like, there were some awkward moments. Yes. Uh, a lot. Did you guys see um, Kit Harrington on Saturday Night Live the week before? That's a little bit of that. Yeah, that was pretty good. Um, all right. So, the point is that there's um, kind of like George R. R. Martin, Charles Dickens would kill off characters that you liked. And um, in particular, there's a character, Little Nell, who uh, it seems really obvious is going to die, but everyone loves her. And so they were actually people were writing letters to Dickens when, um, be before the um, relevant episode came out saying, um, don't kill little Nell. I'll hate you if you kill little Nell. Never kill little Nell. I'll never read another word of you, Dickens, if you kill little Nell. And um, then in America, this was being published in England, and in America the... Um, the, the uh, the magazines would, would, were delivered by ship. And um, people actually were so, it really was kind of like Game of Thrones, people were so anxious about what would happen next that they waited at the docks for the ship to come in so they could get their copy. Um, well, this is like Harry Potter. Did you guys line up at midnight? Any of you line up at midnight? So it was the same sort of thing. For the movies or for the No, no, for the books. At the bookstores, you never did? I didn't line up, but my, parent, like, my parents left. Or not all, but like we were on vacation with a few other families, and one of the family's parents went, and then because we were like kind of young, and then by the time we woke up, they were back, and they had the books for us, like in the living room. So when you woke up the next day, yeah, we yeah, them. but they went at midnight to go get them. Right, and there were people who would um, like get the book at midnight and then read all night, yeah, and be the first person to know what happened. Right. Um, so, same thing was happening in the nineteenth century with Dickens. And, um, spoiler, little Nell dies, as everyone knew she would, um, but they were desperately hoping that she wouldn't. Um, and Oscar Wilde then famously said, he must have a heart of stone who can read of the death of little Nell without laughing. 
So that was wild at his cruelest, that he was laughing at everyone else weeping over the death of Little Nell. But at any rate, so in serial writing, what you have are artificial deadlines. This is a little bit what Ainsley is talking about also, which is that you have um, stories with cliffhanging, with cliffhanger endings and with apparently bad things um, going on. Has anyone read or seen Misery, Stephen King's Misery? Um, have you read it or seen it? Seen it. Okay, the novel is really good. I mean, the movie's really good also. You don't like the movie? Too creepy? Uh, no, I it's Stephen King. The, what do you the, want? The part with the, the hobbling, I almost forgot. Yeah, well, the book, the, the book goes into that in, in exquisite detail. Oh. Um, you learn a lot about amputation Solid. in the book. Solid, yeah. Um, so what Misery is about is um, a woman who's... Uh, very anxious about what happens to her favorite character, whose name is Misery, because bad things happen to her in every installment of her story, is finds, she's a, she's a nurse and she's also a psychopath. And uh, she um, finds uh, the injured author of the Misery series and brings him to her farm where she lives alone because she's a psychopath and has killed various people before. Um, and uh, brings this writer, because she's a nurse, she, um, she uh, cares for him and gives him painkillers, but won't uh, bring him to a hospital and won't quite cure him. And the reason she won't is that in this series, he's, he's a Stephen King-esque writer. That is, he's written this series, um, the Misery series, about this character named Misery, but he hates the fact that that's what he's known for. And what he wants to be known for are his serious novels that no one pays any attention to. But finally, he's decided he's going to kill Misery off. And then he doesn't have to write any more Misery novels. And, um, you know, it's like, um, like J.K. Rowling setting, uh, talking about Harry Potter as an adult so that she no longer has to continue the story of Harry Potter. It doesn't prevent prequels, as we know, but it prevents sequels. So... Um, he finally kills Misery off. The writer finally kills Misery off. And she is really, 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 really angry about this because she loves Misery and she loves how Misery always gets out of the, out of the scrapes that she's in. And Misery has been buried, and she's been buried for like nine months. So this is going to be really hard for Misery not to turn out to be dead. Um, but she tells this writer... Um, I am going to kill you horribly unless you write a novel, a sequel to The Last Misery, in which it turns out that she's not dead. So um, he's forced into writing this novel, and he starts writing it and says, and it begins with, luckily, you know, something like, luckily, Misery had in fact been dug up um, almost the next day, and she starts reading it. She says, no, this won't do. When I was a kid, I used to watch cliffhangers at the movie theaters because they used to show um, the equivalent of episodes of stories. That's what, that's what uh, do people know what the perils of Pauline are? Ever watch Dudley Do-Right? God, you guys, education in really shitty popular culture of the 1960s is lacking. Um, 
So is this a, is this a meme for you that there is a sawmill and there's a evil character who's always rub, rubbing his hands in the cartoons he's known as um, Snidely Whiplash, and there is a poor innocent character who is on a train car that's heading towards the skill saw of the sawmill, and she's going to be cut right in half as the train goes into it. No, this is not vaguely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So those are all from, from cliffhanger serials from before TV. And what would happen is to get you to go to the movies every week, they would show a movie, which was a complete story. Um, they would, in fact, show a double feature. They'd also show cartoons, which is where cartoons began before TV. You watch cartoons at the movies. And they would show what at the time were, well, they're still called trailers, but at the time they actually were trailers because they were after the movie. They trailed the movie. You would watch a movie and then watch the coming attractions. Um, so they trailed the movie. And they would show serial adventures. And what would happen is you would see a character, and the character would um, be in trouble, and then there'd be a cliffhanger. And the very term cliffhanger comes from that, um, that Pauline, The Perils of Pauline was the first of the serials, and Pauline was always about to die at the end of every five-minute episode. She would escape from some terrible thing, and then five minutes later, some other terrible thing would be happening to her. She'd be hanging from a cliff, and then that would be the end of that week's episode. That's why it's called a cliffhanger. So that's where the term comes from. It comes from serial movies starting in the 1920s. And so the um, woman in Misery is the nurse in Misery complains about going to see cliffhangers as a kid. And she says, well, I saw one, for example, where a car goes over a cliff and um, it explodes and everyone in it is clearly killed. And then the next week... They pick it up with the car going over the cliff, but this time you see a door opening and the hero and the heroine rolling out just before it goes across the cliff. But I saw it a week before, and that door did not open. And so she's, this is the beginning of her fury at the culture industry, that they cheated. And she wants a non-cheating version of the story, which the writer isn't giving her. So what is happening in cliffhanger endings is that we have a very short term, you know, there's, there's 10 seconds left, the car is going over the cliff, we have a very short term desire, um, but it's superimposed or overlaid on a long term story. And so chapter endings, um, commercial breaks on commercial TV, episode endings on Game of Thrones, all of those things are manipulating a story which builds up to a climax and there's very little time left and that's part of what makes it climactic is that the climax is always near the end of the episode and um, which is why you guys can always tell I think even you probably especially you can tell when um, a story or a show is about to come to an end it's because this is the place where the shootout occurs. It's not like the shootout occurs 10 minutes in and after that everyone does um, happy farming and flower gathering. It's they start out farming and flower gathering happily, but at the end there's a shootout and what's going to happen. And if there's a shootout and you don't know what's going to happen, you what you do know is the story isn't going to go on that much longer. Um, that's what that's where the concept of false endings comes from also. Um, 
That is, you guys have had that experience where you think the movie is over and then it turns out it isn't, or you think it's about to end but it turns out it isn't. Have you had that experience? Yeah. Even you. Yeah. Heat. Which? Heat. Heat. Yeah. Good example. Um, my favorite example of that is Young Doctors in Love. Remember that movie, which I'm sure you've all seen many times. No. Darn. So in Young Doctors in Love, there are young doctors. They're in love. Looks like it's a rom-com. And um, naturally, I mean, the script writes itself, right? It's a parody, like, like Airplane is a parody of Airport. So in Young Doctors in Love, one of the young doctors gets a terrible disease that there's a possible surgical um, intervention, but no one has ever tried it. And no one is going to try it because it's too dangerous. But of course, if they don't do it, she will die. But nevertheless, no one is going to do it, except, of course, who? who is willing to do it. Remember, it's a rom-com. Her husband. Her boyfriend. It's a, it's a rom-com. They're not married. Oh, you're not married <laughs> God, no. Maybe at the very end, but that's what brings the rom-com to an end, is marriage. Um, can you think of a romantic comedy where they're married? It's really hard. What about the... Um, Sleepless in the, Seattle? The uh, Great Exotic Marigold Hotel. They're all married. Yeah, but is that a rom-com? Rom well, it, no, it's, it's a riff on one. I think it's a rom-com. No, just take a standard rom-com. You can't, you can't I take... I why the first thing that popped into my head was Castaway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did they get married at the end? They're married and then he lives on an island. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm talking about him and Wilson. Yeah, so that's... that's yeah. What is it? I was talking about him and Wilson. Did they get oh. married <laughs> Now, there are things called comedies of remarriage, where, which are romantic comedies where people are about to get divorced and then an interesting thing happens and they realize they love each other and at the last minute they don't get divorced. Um, the great line in this is in His Girl Friday where uh, Cary Grant says to Rosalind Russell, it's one of the great movies of all time, Cary Grant says to Rosalind Russell, who is divorcing him, and the divorce is about to become final, and he can't believe it. And he says, oh, come on, Hildy. That's her name in it. Oh, come on, Hildy. Divorce doesn't mean anything nowadays. A judge just says a few words over you, and ha, you're divorced. Um, so the joke there is that it's a standard thing to pe that people would say about marriage. Marriage doesn't mean anything <coughs> nowadays. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> In Young Doctors in Love, the two medical students are now the two residents. Um, one of them has this terrible disease and is going to die unless there's intervention, but there's no one in the world who's willing to do this intervention, um, except the young man who's in love with her, who is also a resident, and he decides he's going to take the risk. And everyone says, we're not worthy. You shouldn't do this. This is crazy. We can't do it. It's, it's wrong, wrong, wrong. But he says, no, I have to. She'll die anyhow, and I have to save her. And it's absolutely imperative that I do. And he's brilliant. Um, so if there's one resident, um, what we like about him is that he's so good at what he does. So if there's one resident who can do it, he can do it. So um, very tense scene. We can tell it's getting near the climax because he's doing the surgery after the courtship and after all the quirky places where she says she doesn't like him, but he does kind of quirky things, and then we cut to her kind of rolling her eyes but with a sly smile on her face. You know, it's all cliche all the way through. And um, now he's doing this um, uh, really, really difficult surgery. What do you think is happening to his face? Come on, you guys can do this. I thought of one. What? The proposal. 
Okay. All right. He yeah. Yeah. They're engaged. They're not married, but that's pretty. Yeah. Okay. Pretty yeah, but then yeah, but the point is they're engaged and things can go south really fast. <laughs> right, but they're engaged and then they fall in more love. Yeah. So that's 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 a good example. <laughs> I'm going to stand by that. One. Okay, so good. Stand, you you do, you do that. <laughs> you you stand by it. Um, all right. So he's doing surgery. What do you think is happening to his face? What do you mean? He's sweating. Yes. Good. What do you think the nurses are doing? Wiping. His right. Um, what do you think everyone else is doing who's not wiping? Is they're all sweating. It's all it's all terrifying. Um, yeah, you know, it's your standard um, really intense medical intervention with great surgeon who is at the who is at the absolute limits of his power. So you've never seen anything like this. It's like when Superman is is meets Kryptonite. It's like Superman is just totally cool all the way through until oh my God, Kryptonite, and suddenly Superman's at the limit of his powers, or Spider Man's at the limit of his powers. Um, so you get to this place, or Iron Man. So you get to this place where they're at the limits of their powers, but they're still doing it, and it's really, really, really intense and it's a medical drama so we're watching the machinery and what are we seeing beeping yeah blood BP heart monitor all that Um, and then at the most intense moment it flatlines and so what do we think is going to happen yeah but what do we really think is going to happen right um, you know, he's, he's going to, it flatlines and it's all over, but he refuses to give up and he's going to do something heroic and somehow pull her back um, and maybe do something again that's never been done before um, and pull her back. But instead, it then says, game over in, intent, in Nintendo script on the flatlining screen. Um, so in, in a Nintendo font. So it's, it's done. It's over. And they all look at each other and they start weeping. And he looks at her and looks at the screen and shakes his head. And he takes off his cap and he takes off his mask. And it's all over. And they, the surgery's been going on for like 20 hours. So it's early the next morning from the, from the midday the previous day when this whole thing started. And it was a failure. And he leaves. And um, they all leave, and they're putting stuff away, and he um, goes to the parking garage, but he can't even stand to get into his car. So he's walking up the ramp from the parking garage into the really um, uh, polluted, ugly, smoggy, unhappy L.A. morning. And um, it's all really sad, and there's all sorts of sad music swelling. And then the credits come up. And... Um, so they're coming up as he's walking up the ramp, and the credits are coming up, and they get to, like, nose height. And um, so this is the end. As the credits are rolling up over him, the, the world is going now is going to have the credits blocking our even being able to see what's in that world. Um, so this is the end, and it's all over. And there's no way she can be saved now. But as the credits pass his eyes, it's like he sees them. And he says, what? No! And he puts his hands up and he pushes them down um, so that the credits are forced back 
into the below the screen, and he goes running back into the hospital. And it turns out that um, the reason things had flatlined was that a that a wire had been disconnected. Um, and in fact, she's she's there talking cheerfully to the other nurses and having her post-operative breakfast. And he comes in, and um, then it ends really, really happily. And then the same credits come up, but now it's all happy. Um, so um, there's that's that is the false ending um, thematized as an absolute false ending where um, the movie cheats by giving you a false ending which does what true, um, what true endings do. Um, anyone see the OA? Do you guys watch that? My friend does. Okay. Um, I've yeah. seen parts of it. Yeah. It's weird. Mm-hmm. With the dancing. Yeah. 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 Um, the OA does something very interesting in its first episode, which is the um, opening credits only appear after about an hour. So you're watching for about an hour, and then you get the opening credits, and then you get ten more minutes of the first show. Um, so the play, how you mark boundaries in a narrative um, is really interesting, and it has to do with the standard way that boundaries are noticed by consumers of narrative as either the beginning of something. Anyone see Vanya on 42nd Street, the great version of Uncle Vanya? So this is a great movie. You should, you should absolutely see it. Louis Mall. And um, so it's the Chekhov play Uncle Vanya. And what happens in Vanya on 42nd Street is that um, Louis Mall films a rehearsal of Uncle Vanya. And so what we see are all the actors showing up in this 42nd Street Theater in New York City, and um, they're, they're buying coffee and buying donuts for this rehearsal, and Andre Gregory, who's um, directing Vanya on 42nd Street, is there, and they're all doing, um, getting ready for this rehearsal, and they're shaking hands and greeting each other and talking about what they've, what they've been doing um, over, the, over the summer, and it's going to be a read-through, but with action. And Wallace Shawn um, comes in and um, sees another one of the actresses whom he hasn't seen for a long time. And um, they're just waiting for the rehearsal to start. And he lies down. He's really tired. And he lies down and puts his head in her lap. And then he just looks at her and says, how long have we known each other? And if you don't know the play, you don't realize that's actually the first line of Uncle Vanya and that the rehearsal has started. Um, because it just smoothly goes in from what's just an interaction among the actors, now turns into the play itself. Um, Shakespeare does that once in a way, but it was a standard thing to do in Shakespeare's day, was that sometimes um, there's one play where characters in the audience get into a fight, and um, everyone else in the audience says, oh my God, what's going on? But it turns out that fight is the opening of the play. And they think that these are two characters in the audience who are getting into a fight. Um, but it turns out that they're actors in the play and that the fight is the beginning of the play. And you've seen stuff like that in contemporary theater also, where there isn't a clear marking of the beginning of a play. So those boundaries, beginning and ending, um, affect where you map the, the discount curves where we want something sooner rather than later versus later rather than sooner. 
So what Ainsley talks about is how in life we usually will prefer um, sooner but lesser rewards to later but greater rewards, even once you take discounting into account. That most of us take the $100 today rather than $105 next week, even though that makes no sense um, in terms of how you, how you value money, um, assuming equal utility for every dollar. Um, so where the time limit is, the time limit determines um, what kind of choices you will make if you are um, a mammal or a reptile or a bird, um, time limits will, will affect the choices that you make. It's why really good um, sports, um, really good spectator sports, like basketball and football, for example, why the last two minutes are always the most exciting two minutes, it's because the rules of those sports um, allow for the last two minutes to be the place where make-or-break decisions are made. Um, as you probably know, you know, it's the last two minutes of a football game or a basketball game are nothing like the other 48 or, or other 46 or 58 minutes. Um, just, it's not like, oh, there are two minutes left and my team is up by five points, so no problem. It's with two minutes left, five points is nothing. Um, with a quarter left in football, five points may be significant, but with two minutes left, it isn't. And the reason is that we that that strategy becomes different, and that what football and basketball are doing is they have rules in which um, the coaches can do things and will do things that they otherwise won't do. You know, there's a famous question that a Jesuit priest has asked. He's playing poker, naturally. Um, and uh, someone says to him, uh, what would you do if you were to find out that the world w was going to end at midnight? There you are playing poker. What would you do if you were to find out that the w world is going to end at midnight? And his answer is, I play poker. And the reason he's giving that answer, the parable of this Jesuit koan, is that um, he should always be doing what he would be doing if the world were about to end. That is, you shouldn't change your behavior because the world is about to end. You should always be acting virtuously. So if he's playing poker, it's because it's virtuous to play poker, and there's no reason to change your behavior if the world is about to end. But everyone does. A very fast ending of things, unless you're Joseph, affects what you do. And football and basketball are designed as games, unlike baseball. There's a bit of it in baseball, but football and basketball are designed as games um, because they affect what you do. But if you think of baseball, you put a pinch hitter in with two outs in the ninth because the fact that you have a great fielder that you're pinch hitting for is of no interest if you're losing with two outs in the ninth. Um, so that change in what you do when there is a time limit, that speaks very deeply to human psychology. And that is very deep in the way sports works and the way storytelling works. And we want something different when there are 200 pages left from what we want when there are five pages left. And we also are 
loss aversive in a different way, or loss averse in a different way, when there are five pages left from where from the way we feel when there are two hundred pages left. So what we want from narrative and what we want from wealth, um, they track each other pretty interestingly. Um, so finish if you haven't the gambler for Wednesday because I really want to talk about the gambler and want us to talk about the gambler. And um, I will see you then. Time is ticking away. Exams are coming. Winter is coming. Eh, maybe not. Do you know that winter is coming, Noah? Yeah, I know that winter is coming. Do you think it's going to come? Yeah. Yeah, you're predicting. You've seen ads, right? Yeah, no, it's like hard to not get like little spoilers, but I've heard really, really, really hard to just block it off.